hello, uh, First Baptist Church of Keller family. It's good to talk to you today. This is Pastor Keith Sanders, and our Sunday school lesson today is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, into chapter 2 and verse 3. Scripture says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed upon me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known that in the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. Well, first I want to say uh, to all of you who are at home, uh, we're glad you're here. We appreciate uh, Gregory Baines and Rob Eisenman uh, putting these things together for us so that when we're not able to come to church, we can still stay connected and heard some great Great testimonies of all the pastors and volunteers who've been leading these lessons. This is my first time, actually, to teach the online Sunday school lesson. I appreciate the opportunity. You've probably heard from the other guys how important a working knowledge of the background of what was going on behind the scenes in the church at Colossae is to understanding of Paul's words here. The Apostle Paul apparently had never seen the folks in Colossae face-to-face. Remember, he had spent several years in the city of Ephesus, training up leaders. And they apparently went out and planted churches in the surrounding areas. This would be in modern day Turkey. But Paul didn't know these people personally, but he had heard some disturbing reports that some false teachers had come into the church at Colossae. And apparently they were making inroads into some other churches as well. Theologians call this the Colossian heresy. The truth is that we really don't know exactly what the heresy was. We, we make uh, inferences from things that the Apostle Paul said here and in other places. But from what Paul says, apparently there was a mix of Judaism and the beginning elements of a heresy you've probably heard of called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is from the, the root Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. These people were claiming that uh, there were many levels of Christianity, but only the initiated which were they, could understand the deeper things of God, that the less intellectual, um, those whose minds were not as open as theirs, could only attain certain lower levels of Christianity. And Paul is writing to refute that. Uh, he, he uses words like every and all uh, to emphasize true biblical Christianity over against Gnosticism, which is for the elite. Um and really what they were doing is what, unfortunately, some churches are doing today. They're mixing modern philosophy with biblical Christianity. 
and rather than improving it, it always dilutes the truth because Paul says that we're not to add to or to take away. He said if anyone was to preach a different gospel than the the one given to him by Christ, uh, it's not the true gospel. And really what Gnosticism sought to do is to diminish both the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Remember, we teach here, and Orthodox Christianity teaches, that Jesus was the God-man. He was altogether God, and yet he was altogether man. And Gnosticism diminished both of those aspects of the two natures of Christ. So let's just start at verse 24, if we may. If you have your Bibles, let's just walk through this verse by verse. Verse 24 says, remember this is in the voice of the Apostle Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, if you have a pen and a piece of paper and you want to take some notes, I think one of the most important points that Paul makes in the book of Colossians is that Christian joy is not a function of favorable circumstances. We tend to think that uh, that is the case, that when things are going well, when my family's healthy, when things are going well at work, then I have joy, but the other times of life, I don't. Paul went through some incredible difficult times. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 and following, the apostle Paul described many of the things that he suffered after he became a believer. Uh, he said three times he was beaten with rods or sticks. He was stoned. People threw rocks at him. Three times in his travels, he was shipwrecked. One time he bobbed up and down in the ocean for a 24-hour period, day and night, he says. He was often cold and naked and run out of town, thrown in prison. Uh, he was abused in general uh, everywhere that he went. And yet, if you read the book of Philippians, for example, it's uh, we call it the epistle of joy because the word that's most often used is joy or joyful. So in Paul's case, his joy was not a function of things going his way. He had joy because of his position in Christ. And that really is the theme of Colossians, is what theologians call the mystical union. How that when we become a Christian, that we are joined with Christ by faith in this inseparable bond, and that we become part of his body, and we suffer for his sake. And Paul is talking here about some suffering. He's doing real suffering, not metaphorical. He's in prison, by the way when he's writing this. And he says he's suffering on their behalf. That is the Colossian believers. And I take it by extension, all the other believers, because he views this as all part of God's sovereign plan to use him to be the apostle to reach the Gentile, the the, the pagan world. Uh, So he says he suffers these things for their benefit in his flesh. He's making sure they understand this isn't just emotional strain on him. This isn't just anxiety. He's actually experiencing physical deprivation and pain. He also experienced emotional pain because he says that he did his work oftentimes in tears. Uh, But he says that what he's doing is he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, that's a verse that has confused a lot of people because it sounds like Christ did not do enough through his passion and at the cross to atone for our sins. And Paul's kind of making up that deficiency. We know that's not what he's saying. Sometimes in studying theology, it's just as important, sometimes more important, to clarify what he's not saying as to point out what he is saying. Uh, Paul is not saying that Christ did not suffer enough to atone for our sins. We know that 
because almost every verse in this book leading up to the one I just read is a refutation of the notion that Christ was insufficient. Remember, that was the Gnostic heresy, that Christ wasn't God or he wasn't fully man, that he didn't do enough. Paul is is refuting that. What he's saying is um, that Christ is no longer here. Remember, on the 40th day after his resurrection, Jesus ascended back into heaven in bodily form. And so Christ is not here to beat up on anymore. If he were here, that's what people would be doing. They would still be abusing him. But those who represent him, Christians, believers, the body of Christ, we say, are here. And that's why uh, the Lord's true church suffers persecution to this good day. Uh, We have been extraordinarily blessed here in the Western world for many years that we have not had the same type of persecution that many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have. It's uh, no guarantee that we won't one day have that sort of persecution. In fact, it's likely that we will. The Apostle Paul said that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. So Paul's not saying Christ didn't do enough on the cross. He's also not saying that he is contributing anything to Christ's work of redemption. Jesus did everything that was necessary for us to be made right with the holy God. He left the glories of heaven. He was born of a virgin. He grew up for 30 years, lived a perfect life, unblemished by sin, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. The Bible says Christ went to the cross and died in our place. So uh, Paul is not saying he helped Christ with the atonement. He's just saying as a representative of Christ, there is suffering yet for us to do. Now, unfortunately, people have misinterpreted this verse, namely the Catholic Church, to say that we have to contribute to the suffering um, to to make sure we finally get to heaven, and and specifically with the doctrine of purgatory. The idea of purgatory is that, yes, we are saved by the grace of Christ eventually, but we have to go to a middle place after we die called purgatory where we can suffer a little bit so that we can be fit for heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no mention of purgatory in the Bible because of what Paul says here, that Christ's sacrifice is altogether sufficient. So we're not adding to that, but it's very likely if we live long enough that we are going to be called upon as Paul was to suffer some physical, certainly emotional and likely financial um, pain because of our unity and union with Christ. Now, so bottom line, what he's saying when he says that he uh, is suffering uh, and, and that he's filling up these afflictions is that when we are in Christ and intimately attached to him, the lost and dying world will treat us the same way they treated Jesus. Remember, Jesus warned of his disciples of this truth. He said, a servant's not better than his master. Look how the master, the Lord Jesus, was treated. Servants, his disciples, can't expect better treatment than the master. Well, let's talk about suffering as a concept for just a second. None of us, I don't suspect, like to suffer. And yet there are benefits spiritually to suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, there aren't inherent benefits to suffering when we sin. Uh, When we get a speeding ticket, we can't chalk that up as suffering for Christ. (laughs) That's our sin and the natural consequences of it. But when we're living a life devoted to the Lordship of Jesus 
And the consequence of that is that the culture rejects us and that we suffer because of it. There are benefits that accrue to us and to the Lord's church. One is in the corporate context, I think it purifies the church, meaning that when times are good and it doesn't cost anything to belong to a local church, um, a lot of people belong to that church who aren't necessarily believers. Uh, There are social reasons why people belong to the church, but people who aren't truly born again are not going to stay around for persecution. I've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence from my friends in Romania and in Africa and other places in China where there came real persecution. Uh, If someone is called upon to suffer and die for the Lord's sake, those who aren't true believers are not going to stay around for that very long. And so it purifies the church. I think there's also benefits to evangelism. Uh, Lots of historical evidence going all the way back to the Roman Empire of many people who were converted by seeing with what dignity and grace and honor and peacefulness that God's people suffered persecution and even death. Uh, They were drawn to that because there was something in them that was different than they'd ever seen. Certainly there's the benefit of sanctification. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when various trials and tribulations come into your life because those trials work patience. It makes us fitter instruments in the Lord's hand to glorify him in this life. And I think suffering also when we endure it and the Lord carries us through, it uh, gives us a greater assurance that our faith is real. Uh, if th- things are good all the time, uh, then we, we don't understand how dependent we are upon the Lord. But when we go through difficult times and through prayer, we prevail because of the Lord's providence in our life, then it gives us assurance that indeed we are his children. And I think corporately, shared suffering in a church brings about unity and trust. I have a friend who has planted a church a few years ago and some wonderful people there, but they're almost all brand new Christians. And it seems like every week something happens to cause disunity within the church and things that we would view as minor offenses that we would just overlook. They simply have a hard time getting past. And we were talking about one day why that is. You would think in his context where there are so few Christians that people would be quicker to overlook offenses, but that's not been the case. And I hypothesize that it may be because they haven't been together long enough to suffer together, to go through some difficult time in which they could um, learn that they can trust one another. And I don't wish hard times on anybody, but sometimes the Lord brings those hard times into the life of a church so that when they go through them together, they learn that uh, they're not going to leave. I think that's true of marriage. Uh, Those that have been married a long time know that when you suffer difficulties together, if you stay together through those things, uh, it strengthens your bond to know that even in bad times, this person's not going to leave me. Uh, And and so um, those are some of the benefits, I think, of, of suffering. Now, let's go to verse 26. Uh, he says that that is the mystery uh, which has been hidden. He's talking about the word that has been entrusted to him from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. See, Paul was so driven, even though that he didn't necessarily plant this specific church, but he took ownership of it because he was the Lord's apostle to the Gentiles. Remember on the road to Damascus, um, Paul was on his way to persecute believers 
And the Lord struck him blind and commissioned him to be his apostle to the Gentile world. And so for the rest of his life, Paul sought to do that. And he was interested in how these churches were making progress or, or regressing, as the case may be. And he was determined to do one thing in all of these churches, and that is to preach what he called in the book of Acts, the whole counsel of God. That is, everything that the Lord revealed to him, he was determined to share with them and not to hold anything back. And that's why Paul is so keen to refute this Colossian heresy, and later on, specifically, Gnosticism. Because the gospel, Paul says, is open to all people and all kinds of people. Remember, that was the stumbling block that his Jewish friends had a hard time getting around, that they had to come to Christ the same way as the most pagan, idolatrous Gentile did. But that was the beauty of the gospel. As I said a couple of Sundays ago, the ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. We are all sinners, Paul says in Romans 23, and we all are in need of a Savior. And Paul describes this wonderful truth in terms of a mystery in verse 26. The Greek word is mysterion. It means something that was hidden in the past that is now revealed. That is, it was not clear in the Old Testament, but now that Christ has come, it's become crystal clear. And Paul used that term several times in his New Testament writings. He talked about the mystery of the rapture. He talked about the mystery of the Gentiles uh, being grafted in to the covenant promises made to Israel. And he, he's really um, hitting at that point again, I think, that the gospel is for Gentiles as well as Jews. And in this case, he's saying the gospel is for all people, not just the intellectually elite or the insiders. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul seemed to indicate that the majority, the vast majority of people that are going to be in heaven are not the intellectually elite or the wealthy. He says, not many wise, not many noble. God has called, but God has chosen in his sovereignty to choose the foolish things of the world or the baser things of the world to confound the wise. So he's making it very clear that he is refuting this Colossian heresy and he won't stand for it. And then we come to verse uh, 27. He says, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery upon the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here is the essence of this mystery that is now revealed. That if you will become united to Christ through faith. Remember Paul said in Ephesians that salvation is by grace through faith. That is the means by which we appropriate salvation is through faith. He says, then you have everything that you could possibly have. That is the person of Christ. That's what Paul desired more than anything else is intimacy with the Savior. Uh, we have many gospel songs that I grew up on that talk about streets of gold and mansions over the hillside, and those things evoke nostalgia in a lot of us. Truthfully, a lot of them are not very accurate theologically. Uh, they're more nostalgic than theologically precise, unfortunately. The thing that will make heaven heaven is that we'll be with the presence of the Savior forever and ever. It's not all of the you know, notions that we have that we're going to do whatever we like to do here indefinitely and without consequence. That's not heaven. Heaven is being as close to Christ as we could possibly be. And that's what Paul desired for every one of, of these believers. And he says this mystery that has been revealed is the greatest thing that you can have is the indwelling presence of Christ. And this is 
our great hope, what we're clinging to, the thing that's most important to us is this mysterious union that we can't describe, uh, that we are in Christ and he is in us. And so how does Paul convey this wonderful message as he goes from city to city and region to region? Well, he says, I simply preach Christ to whom God willed to make known the riches of his grace and the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now listen to verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So this is what Paul viewed his job description Two things, to admonish every man and to teach every man about Christ. Now, these are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, think of it this way. To admonish someone is to expose to them the things that they should avoid, to warn them of certain things. Um, the other side of that, the positive is teaching them is to reveal to them those things they should embrace, the truths that they should embrace. We call this doctrine. And so those two things together really make up this event that we call preaching and, and teaching the Bible. And so Paul says he was determined to preach nothing but Christ crucified. And sometimes we think that we need to wow people with our scriptural knowledge or our huge theological vocabulary or our eloquence. But the truth is, is what one uh, ancient pastor says that uh, the way he preached is that he read the scripture, and then made a beeline for the cross. Because all the Bible is a testimony of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was pointing us forward to that time when Christ would die on the cross. Now, on this side of the cross, the New Testament points us back to Jesus' crucifixion um, and his sacrifice at the cross. But all of it is about Jesus. The Bible is his book, and he is the hero of it. So what is Paul's goal? What is his ambition in coming back to these same simple truths over and over? Well, he, he lets us know it is the maturity of every believer. So he says in verse 28b, so that, that is the purpose of preaching and teaching, admonishing and teaching, is that we may present, note the phrase, every man complete in Christ. That is, again, another blow against Gnosticism. It's not the elite. He says every man has the potential to make progress in sanctification and come to be as complete a person and a Christian as they can possibly be. And the way we t talk about it here at our church is that you know we have everywhere from a brand new believer in the congregation to someone who's a prayer warrior and a um, mature saint. And, and everyone is on that continuum in between somewhere. But our aim and our ambition is that you're not stagnant where you are on that continuum. You are constantly making progress towards maturity. Now, life is not an even up and to the right. We know that. We go through periods and phases where we feel like we aren't making progress, and then we have periods of rapid growth. But if you take a focus back and you get a longer-term view, what you would see hopefully and prayerfully, is that every believer is making progress towards maturity. And that's what Paul wanted, not just a small percentage of the saints. By the way, that saint is not a term for a super Christian. That's another way that we have misunderstood the Bible. Uh, we've elevated certain people to sainthood who were super Christians. 
No, a saint, in Paul's view, is any born-again believer. And it's the purpose of Paul's teaching that every born-again believer be presented mature uh, in Christ. And so uh, we do not contribute one thing to our justification. Um, it is a work of God. We've been studying this in our Baptist Faith and Message class when we talk about the article on the purposes of grace and election. God chose to save you. He breathed life into you by his spirit through his effectual calling. He granted to you faith and repentance. And justification is the legal term where he, as the judge, declares you not guilty based upon your attachment to Christ through faith and his righteousness is imputed to you. But for the rest of our lives, we are to be making progress in sanctification, that is growth and maturity, and we do participate in that. What I mean by that? Well, through Bible study, through prayer, with regular fellowship with the saints, through all the disciplines that we find in the Bible, we do contribute to our sanctification. Or through laziness and neglect, we uh, contribute to our lack of sanctification. And so the way my dad used to say it to me was like this when I was growing up. We ought to work like everything depends on us and pray like everything depends on God. And here's what I mean by that. I think Paul had that notion when he said that, verse 29, for this purpose, that is so that every man may be presented complete in Christ, I labor, I work hard, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. Now, he recognizes the source of that power is the indwelling spirit, but through that spirit, he works hard. He studies hard. The Bible says study to show yourself an approved workman. So there is a role for us to play in, in our own sanctification. Uh, but of course, God gets the glory because it's through the means of his spirit that that takes place. Now, let's come to chapter two, and it's unfortunate chapter division here. You know that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't have chapters and verses. Those were added many years later by editors to help us find our place in the Bible. But it's obviously continuing the same stream of thought. So it's an odd place to change the chapter here. So he says, for, that is as a result of my hard work and the indwelling spirit and my desire that you grow to maturity, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea for all those who have not personally seen my face. And Paul is, I think, here not just speaking of his uh, physical struggles, but his emotional turmoil, being in prison and knowing there are false teachers trying to undermine the true gospel. That, that had to be terribly painful for the Apostle Paul to not be there physically with him. He says it's not just for the church at Colossae. It's also for the church at Laodicea, which was only 10 or 15 miles down the road. Paul apparently had not been able to teach those people either. Uh, we know later from the book of Revelations that the church at Laodicea did have some real problems uh, and that the Lord Jesus, through his message to them, through the apostle John, rebuked them very, very strongly uh, because they lost their, their first love. And Paul understood that if we didn't constantly um, strive and work hard to make progress in sanctification, it would not be very long before we would backtrack or backslide is the word that we use growing up. Um, and sometimes that happens generationally. You know, this church here at Keller was established in 1882. And I, I talked about how suffering 
can build trust and unity. And I, I have seen that, and as I've studied the history of our church, I believe that has happened here. Um, 18 months ago, 20 months ago, when we entered into this COVID situation, uh, some people asked me, did, did I think the church would survive this? <laughs> and uh, having studied the history of First Baptist Church of Keller, I, I quickly said, absolutely. In fact, what I said was this, this church has endured um, two world wars, the Great Depressions, fires, floods, economic downturns, and uh, 16 years with me as the pastor. And if you can endure those things, you can make it through about anything. And, and that has proven to be true. These have been some hard months, and yet uh, we are emerging through that, I believe, stronger than ever. And I've never been more excited about the future of First Baptist Church of Keller. And I sense a unity happening here that has not happened. Uh, this church has always, since I've been here, had a reputation for strong unity. But I think that unity is going to be even deeper because of the little bit of suffering that we've had to do. And I think more suffering that will come in the not-too-distant future. So here's Paul pouring his heart out. He has a personal concern and love, not just for the people he knew personally, but for all believers everywhere. And I think that informs us that we need to probably spend more time in prayer and thoughtfulness about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are suffering real and tangible physical persecution today. Um, one of the organizations that does a good job of this is Voice of the Martyrs, and I encourage you to, to read their magazine, and they constantly are giving updates about what's happening in other parts of the world, Christians who are losing their jobs and their homes, and in some cases, their lives. Uh, it may surprise you to know that the 20th century saw more Christian martyrs than any other century in the history of time, and I expect the 21st century, if, if things don't change radically, will outstrip the 20th century. So um, it's happening. It's real. And uh, we need to have concern and to pray for, for our brothers and sisters around who are suffering, but understanding that God's promises that he's able and will work all things together for good, even our suffering. And so we're to thank the Lord, James says. Count it all joy when we have to suffer. Remember that our suffering can reveal to others the genuineness of our faith and be a great tool for evangelism, not just a purification of the church. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now and thank him for the Apostle Paul and his willingness to suffer for the sake of the church at Colossae. And I think by extension, we benefited from that as well through his writings. Uh, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution presently and ask him to give us the strength that if we're called upon in days ahead to suffer for the sake of the gospel, that we could do that with the same kind of grace and dignity and peacefulness that Paul did. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word as we find it here in Colossians 1 and 2. We thank, we're thankful, Father, that you raised up a man like the Apostle Paul who was willing to be beaten with sticks, run out of town on a rail, thrown in prison most of his adult life, and do it all with joy because he knew that you were using this in your providence and sovereignty for the benefit of other believers. So Father, we want to specifically pray for our brothers in China and in India and in Indonesia and the Sudan and Africa and in every other place where their lives are threatened daily. Thank you for the encouragement we receive that the church is not only surviving that persecution, it is thriving 
and multiplying. Lord, we long to see a revival here in our land. And it may be that it takes some suffering to bring that about. Lord, we don't have a death wish. We don't have any desire to suffer unless you call for it. But if you call for it and that that's what it takes to bring about awakening and revival, we pray you do whatever it takes. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.